Greetings, ladies and gents, and welcome to this daily science fiction extravaganza, commonly known as Tales, Tales from Outer from space. Out, space. Out, space. Taken from the subreddit HFY, all the relevant links will be down below. And, as always, I hope that you enjoy. And if you do, please consider supporting the channel. On to the science fiction. Story number one. Capitalism, written by Raidna Skaldia. The Grisnok had liberated the barbarian Earth swiftly. In the end, there wasn't much any native species could do in the false of total orbital supremacy. Humans were uplifted to a more civilized role as a client species of the Grizz, a noble star empire. With enough hard work, maybe the humans could join the rank of orange and from there climb to the rank of yellow. With sufficient trust and hard work, all client species could achieve the sacred rank of white, currently occupied by the lonely Grisnork, who awaited their comrades with eager snouts and helping four tentacles. That had been before, of course. Humans had mastered a strange insidious warfare they called uh, marketing and economics. They had made such innocuous suggestions to the rank of orange client species. Wouldn't it make more sense to ship the waste from fuel yards and sell it to the plastic yards? And shouldn't we really own the shipping company? What about paying workers with credit chips so then they can buy things on their own? Without the Bureau of Allocation carefully monthly audits and evaluations of personal worth. And no one leader human guided the warfare. Instead, they instinctively thought this way, scoffing at the barter economy. Many humans were amazed that, yes, this is really how the galaxy worked. Quickly, those expressions would have covered up by innocent smelling snout and wide predatory eyes. It wasn't long before the yards without humans were clamoring to hire them. Humans commonly became managers with temporary rank of orange clearance chits. The yards without them quickly fell behind the Bureau of Allocation's weekly average quotas. Then the Dershinifs began to spout human nonsense about unions and living wage. And soon the entire sectors had fallen under the sway of the ominous, invisible hand. The Grasnok loved it. Yards were producing in quantities hitherto unheard of. Rank of red and rank of orange species began to practically feed themselves with all their impoverishments and efficiency, leaving more food for the civilized species. The Grasnok even finally reluctantly admitted that the humans had achieved rank of orange faster than any other client species to date. With the humans' contributions to the galactic good, the Grasnok just didn't have a choice. When offered, the humans had laughed and flat out refused. It seemed that they only cared about the imaginary credits that they had made up. The Grasnok collectively sighed in relief. If the humans wanted to assign themselves imaginary self-worth points rather than seizing true power, they were more than welcome. It all fell apart with a shocking speed. A single Grisnok with a rank of white had simply wandered into the front line at a hot dog cart and demanded the humans supply it with food. The human had asked for credits, and the Grasnork, buffed with anger, demoted the human from rank of black, and then left and demanded food at the next cart down. 
The same scenario played out four times before the Grisnok left the planet in confusion to obtain lunch elsewhere. In retaliation, the Grizz Noble Star Empire demoted the entire human species to rank of black. The humans shrugged and carried on. The Dursnops refused to disavow the humans and continued to do business with them. The Grizz Noble Star Empire demoted them too, to no avail. At last, the most brave and imperial white fleet of the Grizz Noble Star Empire leapt into action. They surrounded the now black planets and demanded the humans stop the credit nonsense or be destroyed. The humans sent the following message. Whereas the Grizz Noble Star Empire has declared an ultimatum upon the alliance of man and Dershnov, we shall not surrender and prefer to engage with our own fleets. Should the Grizz Noble Star Empire prefer to surrender, they shall pay a fine of 5.7 billion credits for the declaration of an ultimatum. Knowing the humans had only ever had most rudimentary designs of space vehicles and weaponry at their tentacle tips, the Grashnak immediately incinerated the planet, proving their point. The human ships were like insect bites against a brave white fleet. The next message from the humans was far less elegant. Here come some more concepts you frickers don't yet understand. War economy and the economics of scale. And that was the last communication between the two polities before the Grisnak were overwhelmed by oceans of insect bites. Entire star systems, once pristine, were stripped mined to the absolute limit for their resource capacity. Yards that once made commercial liners now made superluminal missiles. The entire human and Tersnoff economies were united in a single goal of destroying the Grisnok. And the most terrifying part was the number of Alliance consumer goods grew. The humans and their allies were throwing millions of cheap, mass-produced fighters at the irreplaceable ships of the most brave and the Imperial White Fleet. And their civilians were living better than they would be before the war. This ends your free sample of a history of our doomed noble enterprise of the Grisnerhof. If you would like to purchase the rest of this book, please pay your 25 credits to Barnes and Nobles at the Exonet link. End of story. Story number two. A lesson learned, written by no good ID names. Lesson one. The only true failure is a lesson unlearned. The Asveian martial lessons are the cornerstone upon which their entire interplanetary kingdom is built. There are 224 lessons, and it is claimed that they contain all the wisdom an Asvian needs to know to succeed in the art of war. A cheap copy of the thin book is given to every would-be officer at the start of their training. While some quickly replace theirs with a more extravagant copy, many of the highest-ranking officers take pride in still using their original care-worn book. Still others disdain a copy at all, having committed all 224 passages to memory. The lessons may be amended, but such as an advent has not happened in over a thousand years. All seven noble houses and the three great intelligences must convene in the military chapel of Asvaya's capital city, and the debates can last decades. They are deciding the fate of the race's future after all. It is the result of martial lessons and their intense familiarity with them that has made the relatively small kingdom of Asveya a force to be reckoned with. Their soldiers are respected for their discipline and their commanders renowned for their tactical genius. They 
are not, however, a merciful race. Lesson 94. A blow half-delivered leaves an evil to breed. By the year 65,875 of the fourth Grand Galactic Calendar, the Ashwayans had been at war against the Plon race for nearly a century, Though the Plon had a larger empire and could bring more resources to bear, their bloated bureaucracy was ill-suited for war, and they had lost more and more ground to the edge of the Aswayan blades. One more such conquest arrived in Antema, a Plon-settled moon orbiting the great ringed gas planet Edramon. In a graceful lightning strike, the Asvayan cruiser adherents fell upon the colony, opening fire and knocking out the moon's defenses as soon as it dropped out of hyperspace. Arturma was hardly a fortified stronghold at the edge of the Empire. The best they could do against such an overwhelming firepower was a distress call to the nearest Plon planet, over a week's travel away. Asbayan shuttles began to descend from the orbiting adherents. Once ground troops had secured the Atermo, they would begin making the moon's facilities fit for their species. When good, proper Asbayan citizens could be shipped in, Atermo would be a productive colony once more, and a valuable foothold further into the Plon Empire. But it was just after the first dropships had landed that the adherents received a surprise hail from Captain Frederick Milaglade of the Terran mining ship Sevenfold. Lesson 113. Devotion to trade is a weakness of the spirit. Captain McLeod had arrived in System two weeks earlier to mine the rings of Aldramon from valuable metals and gases. In that time, the entirety of his contact with the Ploms and Atoma had consisted of terse authorization codes and brief clearance requests. They knew him only as a gruff, humorous voice and a lonely blue blip on the senses. McLeod hailed the adherents, requesting permission to land on Atoma, to take on the Plon refugees, even with his storage base half full. He said, there was a room for supply enough aboard the Sevenfold to hold the entire colony. The Ashvayans denied the request, of course. They had their own plans for the colonists. When the settlement was under complete control, the Plons would be shuttled up to the adherents and placed into stasis. When the cruiser returned home, they would be distributed across the Ashvayan space's slave labor. MacLay had cited a Titan Concordant and its subsection regarding the ethical treatment of non-combatants. The Asveyan countered that with Concord's ruling did not extend beyond humanity's borders. MacLay had offered the resources he had mined so far in exchange for the plums. It was pointed out that the colonists would fetch a far higher price as slaves than the stores were worth. MacLay had appealed to their basic common decency. The adherents responded with a warning shot across his stern. Only then did the mining ship back off, reversing thrusters and retreating to the safety of the gas giant's rings. The Asveyans, confident that the Terran was no longer a concern, returned to more important matter of securing the moon. Lesson 34. Leave no weapon unwielded, no resource unstripped. The colonists had little in the ways of weaponry, and what little fighting spirit they might have was extinguished by the sight of a massive battlecruiser hanging overhead. They were fringe settlers as well, unfamiliar with the standard Ashvayan protocols upon seizing a conquered world. It was not until the soldiers began to divide the females up that they gasped to the extent of their situation. There was resistance then, but not enough. 
the Asbeans had enslaved over a dozen plon planets by that point, and the procedure had become more and more efficient with practice. The children were torn from their parents and herded into the center of the town square. At any adult's attempt to rebel or escape, the children would, would be punished with shock codes. Only after the other shuttle had been loaded and made ready would they be packed into the last one. Eleven hours in, eleven hours of shrieking and waning, of desperate begging and outraged cries, of the thudding march of combat boots and the crackle of arcing goads. Eleven hours, and less than halfway done. It was then that MacLeod returned. Lesson 202. The tide's slow rolls makes fearsome waves. A Class Three Terran mining ship is equipped with a low-pulse reactionless drive, heavy titanium plating, a D-Class excavation laser, a brassed ramjet, and, uh, of particular note, a wide-spectrum tractor beam cannon. With the tractor beam, the miner can pull promising asteroids to the ship for ease of harvesting. The wide-spectrum model allows a variety of masses to be controlled simultaneously. Theoretically, the only upper limit of how many objects that can be controlled at once are the pilot's skill and the beam's power output. The low-pulse drive is slow to get going and could never match an actual warship for maneuverability. Its power comes from Newton of old. Once the ship gets started, it keeps on going. Over a long enough span of time, a low-pulse reactionless drive will slowly accelerate to the speed that any ship of the line can respect. Captain McLeod had retreated to Alderman's ring system, yes, but from there he had kept going, gradually building up speed. The sevenfold skimmed the outer disk edge, bleeding hydrogen gas off the ring fuel, in a slingshot orbit that would take it far off the Ashman sensors, all the way around the gas giant and back to Atoma once more. But not alone. While the shipboard computer calculated his maneuver, McLeod had manned the tractor beam. He had mined fields for twenty-nine years and could wield the tool like a scalpel. A decently sized asteroid, a gentle nudge, and then it was locked into his wake. Then another, and another. It slowed the ship down, sure, but he had a steady flow of fuel and a generous window. And then he had friends. Lesson 6. Blessed is he whose death brings victory. By the time the sevenfold left the cover of Edmund's rings, it was moving at roughly one-fifth of the speed of light trawling seventeen asteroids of varying sizes at the same speed. The adherents detected it almost immediately, but by then it was too late to coordinate an evasive maneuver. It was too late to do anything at all. The MacLeod's ship struck the Asvian ship broadside, very nearly cleaving the adherents in two with its impact. Less than a millisecond later, the seventeen asteroids swallowed suit, whereupon it effectively ceased to exist in any sense of the word. The Ashvayan troops on the ground and the disappearance of their proud cruiser in the sudden near supernova was devastating on their morale. Their military command, with the absolute confidence, had not felt it necessary to send more than a single cruiser to a termo. With the adherents now a ball of expanding plasma, they were completely stranded, many simply in shock, struggling to grasp exactly what had happened. In this moment of confusion, the Plon colonists seized their initiative. The soldiers outside the shuttles found themselves surrounded by furious settlers armed with crude arsenal of farming tools. Those within the shuttles found that force of numbers count much higher in such confined spaces. 
The pressing mob quickly swarmed and overwhelmed them. When the plan reinforcements arrived three weeks later, they found their citizens guarding the large force of Aswayans ever captured in the war. No salvageable remnant of the adherents of the Sevenfold or Captain McLeod were ever found. Lesson 76 A Sleeping Giant is Best Left Undisturbed Five years after the death of Frederick MacLeod, the Terran Alliance extended its military protection over the Plan Empire, citing a concern for the safety of human merchants and tradesmen in such a war-torn territory. Two years after that, the Kingdom of Ashwaya announced the end of the Hundred-Year War with the Plan. Implicit in their peace treaty was the condition that all slaves of the Aswayan be returned to their respective family and homes. And 23 years after that, the seven noble houses and three great intelligences quietly amended Ashwayan martial lessons to include a new lesson. Lesson 225 Sometimes when they back away, it's just to get a good run-up. End of story And that, my friends, concludes this dose of science fiction fun. I hope that you enjoyed and if you did, please don't forget to support the author from the link down below. But if you want to support this channel, there are links as well down below for you to help with. But the easiest way would be to share this video. And if you are so inclined, subscribe as well. I will see you all in the next episode. And I hope that you all have a fantastic time until then. Cheers.